Welcome to the PR Moment podcast. Produced in association with the Marketeers Network. Welcome. Today on the PR Moment podcast, I'm talking to Matt Peacock, who's partner at Blurred, about something that I suspect about six months ago a few of us had heard about. Um, and no, I'm not talking about COVID, but I'm talking about ESG. Matt is a partner at Blurred. He's an ex-corporate affairs director at Vodafone and a visiting fellow at Henley Business School. Just to let you know, we've launched our new on-demand series of webinars, including PR analytics and LinkedIn as a marketing channel. Do take a look at the homepage of prmoment.com for more info. Matt, welcome to the show. Thank you. Now, Matt, just talk to me about ESG, which for those of you who don't know, is environmental and so- environmental, social and governments is what those three letters stand for. Um, do you think it's the most important development um, in terms of the profile of public relations within, I guess, within the corporate context of an organisation um, in recent memory? Uh, yes, I do. And actually, I'll go further. I think it's one of the most important things that's happened to business for the last 50 years. So not just the public relations function, but the the entities that we, we all serve, whether we're in-house or in an agency, um, the companies that we work for are undergoing radical transformation as a consequence of this, this strange um, acronym we call ESG, Environmental, Social and Governance. And that that matters because essentially what ESG is, is a combination of different risks um, around environmental risks. So climate change, for example, or ecological harm, uh, water resource use, that kind of thing. Uh, social risk, which is both how companies treat their own workforce, their own employees, but also uh, the human rights risks associated with what companies do. And governance, which is essentially how well companies are run, what kind of corporate culture do they have, uh, how do they deal with issues like bribery and corruption, what do they do to ensure that all of their shareholders are protected equally and that the board of the company acts independently and fairly towards all shareholders. All of those different clusters of risks um, have essentially transformed how companies need to view the world. What, 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 what's happened up to now in, in business is that companies have thought of risk as something that happens to them. So the bad things that can happen to you as a business over the next kind of one to three years and out going out into the future. So companies have, have sort of thought about, in the short term, what are the externalities that could Uh, prevent us from achieving our objectives. What ESG does as a discipline is it flips that on its head and it forces companies to think about the risks that they, they represent to the outside world and to the planet. What are the potential harms that a company could inflict upon its workforce, upon the communities around it, upon the climate, upon uh, the ecological and and, and biosphere around it, and also over a longer time frame, over the next sort of five to 10 years. And and as a consequence of, of, as it were, flipping that view of risk, it almost rewires the corporate brain. It forces companies to think much longer term than traditionally they've done so. And also, as, as, a, as a way of approaching risk, ESG forces companies to think about the impacts they have on others 
not just the impacts that others have on them. And that in turn tends to make companies more resilient. They actually are more able to withstand shocks, including COVID, by the way, um, because they are, um, they're, they're much more holistic in the way they approach risk. So if you take the long view of this, if you look at how uh, all companies have evolved over the last sort of 50, 70 years since the Second World War and the, the sort of the boom years in the 50s onwards, actually the ESG movement, and it really now is a movement, has brought about one of the most significant changes in how businesses interact with the world that we've seen certainly in my lifetime. And how does ESG differ from purpose? Clearly they're related, but, but firms and PR firms in particular have been trying to um, push purpose as a, 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 something that firms need to be taking more seriously for, for, for a long time now. But ESG seems to be... I, it seems to be have more momentum than even purpose, actually, and I, I mean that from the from the in-house side of things, does it? And is is that because investors are listening to it? So it's best to think of these things as a continuum. So at Blurred, we we talk about ESGP, yeah. Uh, we make we make the acronym even longer. So it's ESG and purpose, and they're a continuum, one into the other. And the reason why they're a continuum is because. If you think of ESG as essentially requiring the company to prove that it seeks to do no harm, that's what ESG is. Yeah, the company is 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 uh, sets out to try to reduce the potential harm that it causes to people and planet. And then purpose is about how a company seeks to prove that it does good. Yeah. Uh, and the two go hand in hand. It's a kind of yin and yang. Yeah. So, so ESG is all about uh, addressing the negative potential. It's all about reducing the negative impact of what a business um, does. Purpose is about the positive impact. It's about demonstrating that the company exists to deliver a positive social good. Um, and you can't really have one without the other, not, not to be in, in, in the business world, not, not to be a strong leader for the long term. You have to be able to prove that you, you seek to do no harm in order for the world to be interested in listening to you when you try to prove that you actually exist to do good. Sure. Um, and, and one of the issues with the purpose movement is that uh, too often the conversations start around how do we show the world that we're a good company without actually having done the work of showing the world that we're not a bad company in the first place. Okay. And I mean, you know, I don't know whether you have these stats to hand, but how, how well entrenched is, is ESG as a movement, as, a, as a, a set of KPIs within, let's say, the FTSE 250? Are, are we saying 5% of the, the FTSE 250 have an ESG rating or is it higher than that? Where are we on that, on that journey, so to speak? Yeah, so, so I mean, all public companies have an effect in ESG rating because ESG forms part of the standard assessment of a company undertaken by any major institutional investor now. So, so the question in a sense is how many companies are triple A ESG rated, i.e. the very, very best? And the answer to that is a, a tiny, tiny minority. To be an ESG leader as a business, 
you have to have very mature and 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 developed ESG risk management processes, and and many companies just aren't there. Um, in terms of it as a as it were a KPI from an investor perspective. Um, ESG is now mainstream within the investment community. So um, all, all of the large institutional investors, so, so BlackRock, Fidelity, Allianz, uh, and so forth, all of those large institutions now consider ESG factors as standard when making a decision about whether to uh, invest in a company, whether to hold that investment, or whether indeed to walk away from that investment. Um, so it is a standard part of the institutional investor framework um, and companies that have um, a very strong ESG performance uh, find it easier to access capital. They find it easier to raise debt than companies that don't. And there's some really good data that was published only a, um, a couple of months ago uh, using MSCI index data, looking at company performance, public company performance across the major um, uh, capital markets in the world and that that data demonstrated that a company that has a strong ESG performance that's AAA rated um, has a very significant cost of capital advantage over a company that's a poor performer and to give you an idea how significant in the US uh, cost of capital is up to a hundred basis points cheaper so that's one percent cheaper in terms of how much it costs you to raise capital and about 80 basis points, that's 0.8% cheaper in terms of cost of debt. Now to put those numbers in context, because this is all, you know, if you're not in the investment world, this kind of sounds very abstract. If a company has, uh, let's say $40 billion of debt, which is not unusual in some sectors, yeah? Um, the annual interest cost on that debt for that to move by 1% of the value of the debt in terms of the annual interest costs you pay because of your ESG performance is hugely material. We're talking about very large sums of money that, that hinge on whether or not you're a strong ESG performer. And that's quite apart from the fact that there are increasing categories of funds that will, not, will simply not invest in a company with a poor ESG performance at all. Right. So it's not just a case of how much you pay. Is that a is that a a moral judgment by the investors or is is that more about that? What you were talking about earlier, that the ESG or companies that perform well from the ESG perspective tend to be more robust companies. It's the latter. Uh, It's I mean, you know, there are there are there is a sort of there is a moral and emotional dimension to this, too. I mean, one of the the changes that sort of crept up on people uh, without uh, many business leaders necessarily noticing is that you know the investment community is full of people making uh, significant decisions about where the money should flow who are themselves millennials there is a generational shift in the finance world um and you know like all millennials or i'm generalizing obviously but like a very large number of millennials uh, the climate crisis is a major factor in people's emotional response as well as their intellectual thinking. So part, so part of it is, is there is a generational shift in terms of attitude within within the investment community. But um, the largest part of it is very sort of hard-nosed, as it were, and it's driven by uh, this whole point about risk, that companies that have strong ESG performance, to get there, 
they have developed very, very mature risk management processes, much more so the companies that are poor performers in ESG. Um, and the other data point which is relevant to this is uh, through COVID. So the first quarter of reporting after the pandemic began, the companies that are, are uh, ESG leaders have outperformed the market as a whole in terms of their ability to withstand all of the financial shocks of COVID. And if you think about it, actually, that's quite logical because, for example, uh, in order to be a leader in ESG, you have to be good in all three of those things of the E and the S and the G. And a big part of the S is about your supply chain. It's about having a deep understanding of risks in your supply chain. You cannot be an ESG leader unless you have that. If you have a deep understanding of risk in your supply chain and strong relationships in your supply chain, and then something like COVID comes along, it's kind of logical that you're going to be in a, a stronger position than a company that's never really engaged with risk in its supply chain and doesn't really have strong relationships. Yeah. So, so there's, there's solid financial data demonstrating on average that companies that have a high ESG rating are, are more resilient and are more likely to, to pr protect value or deliver higher returns over time than companies that have a poor rating. Sure. Can we just go into a bit more detail? I mean, I get the, the broad scope of this from an environmental, societal, governance perspective. But what are we talking about when we're, you know, if you're going into a company, for example, and, and looking at their ESG, you know, where do you start? I mean, it's such a broad scope of work, isn't it? Where, where, does, where do you look within companies to, to make progress on this stuff? What are the types of people within that business that need to be involved and I suppose to an extent anyway what, what are the KPIs that are the most important ones when you when you're trying to judge whether you've, you've, you've had success yeah so so I mean the first thing is you don't go in and and as it were try and look at the whole thing in one go because you can't ESG is an amalgam it brings together a whole set of uh, actually quite different categories of risk and subcategories of risk um, and so, I mean, the, the short answer to the question is, as it were, in process terms, uh, when we at Blurred do an ESG assessment of a company, and we do a lot of them, um, what we do is we look at the different subcategories under the E and the S and the G, and we analyze where the company is at in terms of its policies, its procedures, uh, its transparency. So what is it, what is it communicating about what it's doing? Uh, the communications of uh, policy and procedure are as important as the policy and the procedure themselves. You have to what's called know and show. You have to know what the risks are and you also have to show that you're dealing with those risks. Um, so we go in and, and conduct a quite granular analysis um, using a thing called the Sustainability Accounting Standards Board's materiality map. Sorry, it's a bit of a mouthful, but SASB, the Sustainability Accounting Standards Board, is becoming the sort of the standard template that is used to do this stuff. And what they have done, what, the, what SASB have done, is set out a whole series of subcategories of subcategories under the ESG headings that you use to measure a company's performance. So you look at 
um, freedom of association in the workplace, you look at human rights in the supply chain, you look at uh, waste water and, and waste management, uh, you look at air quality issues, you look at uh, their bribery and corruption programs, you look at money laundering, you look at a whole series of um, I mean, depending on how granular you want to be, you can go down to 77 sub 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 categories. Okay, uh, depend and and the prominence of those will depend on the sector, and they will depend on many factors about you know where the company operates, how it operates, what it does. Yeah, but you go in and you look at the specific subset sets of ESG risk that are most relevant to that company. You look at what the company is doing. Uh, and you look at what it's saying about what it's doing and then compare that to the benchmarks because there are benchmarks for all of these things. Yeah. The, you know, the, you, you, you go into these exercises knowing what good looks like because there are other companies in that sector who do it well, or there are other companies in other sectors who do a particular aspect of ESG really, really well. So that's how you do it. It's a kind of granular building up bit by bit of different aspects of risk under the subcategories of ESG, uh, benchmarked against uh, sort of emerging standards and best practice in that sector. And that in total, when you put it all together, will give you a, a, a blueprint for what the company has to do to get better. So, you know, they might be really strong on carbon, but really weak on human rights risks in the supply chain, for example. Yeah. Um, and then the KPI, where, where, you know, how you then assess that, um, now, this is where it's much more of a black art, um, is, uh, is kind of forming a view as to how the external ESG ratings agencies will look at this when they, when they assess the company, and also how individual institutional investors will look at it. You know, what score would they give a company for its human rights program um, based on what they can see? Yeah. So it's, it's a complicated process, but actually it's not based on intuition it's actually based on quite a mechanical set of benchmarks that, that, that have been around for a few years now yeah and from a i suppose from a public relations from a corporate affairs perspective what is the role of of of, of that bit compared to the wider company when it comes to esg how how important is that is public relations is corporate affairs to ESG or, or is it are other bits of the business as important or more important who, who tends to drive this stuff so so typically corporate affairs is the owner I mean my view is that ESG is becoming the preeminent discipline for the corporate affairs profession and for the commerce profession worldwide um, uh, and the reason the reason why corporate affairs is central to all this is twofold first of all ESG has no one owner within the company which is quite unusual in, in the way that companies tend to work. So typically, you know, you, you think of a category of risk, it has an owner. There is, there is a function within the business that is the, the go-to for that risk and, and for the, the processes to mitigate that risk. Because ESG is an amalgam, because there's a whole bunch of different things brought together, there is no one owner. Yeah, so the environmental risks, you know, tend to be owned by the sustainability function sustainability traditionally is focused on environment the social risks are owned partly by hr because they sort of own the workforce as it were potentially by the legal function because they tend to own a lot of the external risks around human rights potentially by procurement 
who manage the supply chain. Yeah. Uh, governance. Governance is owned by, again, a combination of different bits of the business. Some of it might be legal, some of it might be HR, some of it might be the company secretary who traditionally owns uh, corporate governance in terms of public company relationships with its shareholders. So you've got these sort of different functions owning different parts of it and then over and above all of that by the way the people who tend to worry the most about this right now are the cfo so the finance function uh, and the investor relations director because investors are all over companies to get their act together on esg but they don't own any of it the finance function doesn't own any of this data so so the first thing is there's no one owner um, the corporate affairs function is essentially the aggregator so it's not the owner of the risk. It's not the only owner of the information, but, but you know, people like me in my role at Vodafone, my job was to pull it all together from these different functions and make sense of it. And then as critically, as I said earlier, it's about what we call know and show. So know what your risks are and mitigate them, but then show that you're doing that. As critically, you've got to communicate this lot. It's not enough to be to be doing the right thing you have to show you're doing the right thing uh, and that's why the communications function the communications discipline and, and corporate affairs is central to all of this because you you have to not just have the right policies and procedures and operating processes and so forth you also have to be able to tell the world about what you're doing and have the world believe that you're doing the right thing which is core to the communications discipline and how uh, how does it work? Is it audited? So you come up with a, a score, a business comes up with a score. Is it, is it audited? Is there, does somebody come in and, and say, yes, that's correct, we believe you? Or, or is it, is it a, a bit less formal than that? Um, that's a really, really good question. So th there is a, uh, I mean, th this ESG is still, it's still, re it's still relatively new, okay? Um, it's not nearly as well established as, um, the, you know, the principles of accounting, for example, which go back hundreds of years, um, or even actually the sort of standard um, principles of good corporate governance for a public company, which have, have been largely, they change all the time, but the, the basic principles have been settled for decades. ESG is too new as an amalgam to be in that place. So to be completely honest with you, in terms of the assessment process, it's the wild west. There isn't yet consistency. Um, I mean, across uh, the, um, the Sustainability Accounting Standards Board made an assessment recently that across uh, 80 industries and subsectors, there are something like 230 different sets of benchmarks. Okay, so so we are a long way from consistency, um, and and that makes life difficult, right? So, so some aspects of ESG are relatively well settled and are externally assessed, um, uh, not necessarily audited, but certainly externally assured. So carbon reporting, for example, statutory carbon reporting, when a company has to report on its carbon impact, there's, there are quite mature processes to do that because they've been around for quite a few years now. Other aspects are much more subjective in their interpretation. So how do you, for example, compare one company's approach to human rights risk with another company's approach to human rights risk. You know, what, you can come up with quantitative measures to try to do that, you know, num number of management hours devoted to assessing human rights risk or whatever, but actually they're not really that effective as, as a way of comparing one against the other. And, and, and one of the big challenges in the future 
and this is much talked about within the ESG community, is getting to a single set of uh, the you know the equivalent in in accountancy of of IAS or IFRS if if, if you know those where you you know there's a standard set of approaches that define what good looks like and there's no debate about one company versus another company on a subjective measure um, but we are unfortunately some way off that because this is all also relatively new and from a from a public relations perspective um how significant a money-making opportunity do you think this is for PR firms? Because my, my sense is that the management consultants and the accounting firms are going to be, well, they're not already, they're, they're, they're going to be all over this, aren't they? Yeah, so, so there, there's a bit of a scramble in the advisory world to, to, to become ESG expert shops, right? Uh, it's not just in in the the, the communications industry uh, with uh, PR agencies and so forth. It, it's absolutely the case within law firms, uh, within management consultancies, uh, within uh, accountancy and audit firms. Um, I mean, pretty much every category of advisory firm you could think of that has a relationship with um, of any kind with senior leaders within a business it has spotted the opportunity to develop ESG expertise. My caveat though, would be coming back to what I said earlier, that ESG is, it's a combination of, as it were, sort of, you know, policy and mechanics on the one side and storytelling on the other side. Transparency, effective communications are as important as having the uh, the risk the, the risk mitigation mechanics in place, yeah, um, and you know law firms, uh, uh, management consultancies, uh, uh, accounting and audit firms are not storytellers. I mean, they can hire in storytellers, but it's not in their DNA, yeah. Um, so my my view, and it's one of the reasons why you know I'm a partner of Blurred, why. I, I, mean, I have worked with other firms, uh, other categories of advisory firm in the past, but but um, it's why I joined Blurred is that my view is that the communications industry is actually uniquely well placed to be the most effective advisors on ESG for companies in the future, because if a uh, if a comms business combines ESG expertise, which is pretty technical, with uh, the ability to persuade stakeholders and the ability to communicate effectively and the ability to tell a story, which is stock in trade for a comms agency, then actually the, the, the ESG expertise in the advisory world will increasingly move into the communication industry more than any other advisory sector. Yeah. And just finally, Matt, if people are out there either in-house or agency side and they want to learn more about this stuff i mean how do you how do you learn more about it is it experience or are there courses out there where you can go and and, and improve your your skill sets around esg uh so yeah, a great question i mean there isn't uh, there isn't really a kind of an off-the-shelf esg qualification um there are uh, well-established sustainability qualifications um sustainability the e of esg is uh i, I would say one of the oldest bits of, of esg it's the most established so um you know you can do a master's in sustainability a master's in, in environmental management that kind of thing that's a really good foundation to understand the e um 
But look, I mean, to be honest with you, one of the interesting things about the ESG community is that it's it the people within it are you know are very heterogeneous. I mean, there's a widespread of backgrounds. You've got people who come from a social science background, people who come from an anthropological background, people who have a legal background in corporate governance, um, uh, people who've come out of uh, environmental risk, and then people have sort of done bits and bobs of all of it for a long time, including, in my case, a lot of human rights work. Human rights is my, my specialist area. Um, uh, but, you know, who don't have a, a master's in environmental science. So... Um, I, there isn't an, a single place you can go to to learn. There's an awful lot of stuff online, including actually and especially from institutional investors and organisations like MSCI uh, and the London Stock Exchange have got some great material online about ESG and how it works. So a lot of it is essentially self-teaching. Some of it is structured learning, uh, particularly on the E um, and some aspects of the S around human rights, for example. Um, but there isn't one place. There isn't one place. A lot, of, a lot of it is learning by doing over time. Okay. And in terms of the role of a, of a comms agency, a, a PR firm within this, it's to what? It's to work with the corporate affairs director in-house and, and help them understand more about where that company is at from its from an ESG perspective, is it that tends to be how 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 the role tends it works out? It actually it varies. I mean, uh, the, the the client can be a different function depending on the company. So, uh, I mean, increasingly the people in my experience who are uh, the as it were the first within the business to worry the most about ESG are the CFO. So it's the finance function. Uh, general counsel, so the, the person leading the legal function may be the primary client, depending on the nature of, of the uh, of the company. In larger companies, absolutely, it, it should be, and increasingly is, the corporate affairs director who is the client. So it's it's the me in my previous job because I, I ran the ESG program at Vodafone, um, and there where it's the corporate affairs director and the corporate affairs director is already, you know, fully aware of his or her responsibilities around ESG. It's about providing additional expertise. Uh, so, so in, in, in my business in, in blurred, we have a, a sort of a, a, a deep expertise in the technical subsets of risks of ESG that we can bring in for a particular purpose. Um, and the corporate affairs director in house won't have that. You know, they won't, they won't have someone in the organization who spent, you know, 20 years working on money laundering programs in East Asia or whatever it is that they need. Yeah. Whereas we can bring those kind of people in. So it will vary from client to client um, and from company to company. Uh, ideally, it's the corporate affairs director because ultimately everything needs to lead to a communicable product. Everything needs to lead to the company being able to show the world that it's doing the right thing. And so the communications function absolutely essential to all of that but quite often as i say it's the people who are most exposed to the pressure to be different which tends to be cfo ir director potentially uh, getting pressure from their investors who who actually makes the first phone call or, or sends the first email yeah it will vary depending on the company brilliant matt peacock partner blurred thanks so much for coming on the show thank you Thanks for listening to the PR Moment podcast, produced in association with the Marketeers Network. If you'd enjoyed the show, please do review us on iTunes and give us a decent rating.